Well, you've made it to our 13th episode. I'm Wit, and I'm your host on the Improv Comedy Connection. As we get close to the end of our first season, it has been so much fun to see and connect with new listeners all over the world. I know a lot of that is you kind folks sharing these conversations with your friends and fellow comedy professionals, and I really, really appreciate that. One of the joys of doing this podcast is getting a broader view into the development of the art form in a number of places and a number of ways. In today's conversation, I speak with Andy Goldberg, who has been improvising with Off the Wall in L.A. since 1975, almost 45 years. His book, simply entitled Improv Comedy, came out in 91 and was updated about 20 years later. But the commonality of the language and principles with what improvisers in other parts of the country and other schools or paths that I found is really quite striking. We'll talk a little bit about the experience of improvising with Robin Williams in this episode, and he was part of Off the Wall for about a year and a half. This conversation is a bit of a double-edged sword for Andy. In part, it's something people in improv are interested in, and uh, I guess that makes it a marketing advantage to tout that connection. On the other hand, it's a conversation about somebody else, or at least it can seem that way. In our discussion on the topic, I feel it's most interesting to see that conversation and experience from Andy's perspective as an improviser. There's much more, of course, in the conversation, but let me get out of the way and get you into the Andy Goldberg episode of the Improv Comedy Connection. Andy Goldberg, you have been an improviser since 1975, is that right? Yes, I've probably been improvising since the 50s, but... <laughs> Just like personal life uh, experience? No, I used to do the variety show for polio in my garage. All right, tell me about that. Let's start <laughs> we, there. Let's, we, let's we go to your garage. What's happening we, in Andy's garage? <laughs> we improvise sketches. Uh, okay. Yeah. Just as a kid? Yes. And and this was to, to raise money, I assume? Yeah, and then I did uh, some of it in college. It was the variety show for polio that I did as a kid. Okay. And then I did some improv in college, but I didn't know what it was called. We just made stuff up. Okay. And then did you perform for audiences then? Yeah. So so this is one of the things I kind of wanted to hone in on. So, so you've been, have you always been on the West Coast, Andy? No, I'm from Cincinnati. Oh, you're from Cincinnati. Okay. But your your time with Off the Wall, which is where I traced back to 1975, that was a group that you were part of the founding of and is still still going to this day. So that's that's a nice run. Yeah. But where where would you say was it was it uh, D. Marcus? Was she your first formal trainer in improv? Yes, I went to an open mic night at uh, a theater here in Los Angeles and. Um, I just went in to watch. It didn't seem like people were that interesting. So I had had my guitar in the car. So I went, well, I think I can be as funny as these people. So I went out and got my guitar, brought it back in, played a song. And okay. uh, Dee Marcus was in the audience with her son, Norman Marcus. And she asked me uh, if I would wanted to be in her workshop and that she was about to start a show. So um, she had moved down here from Palo Alto, California, Northern okay. California, and uh, had been part of a company called the Illegitimate Theater, which um, had performed on, uh, I think, on Johnny Carson. They definitely did Merv Griffin and a few other of the talk shows. Anyway, she was moving down here to start her own group, and I joined the workshop and was in there for a month or two, and then she started the show, hmm. September 1975. Okay, so a month of training, but uh, you said you had had some exposure, maybe not as formal back in college as well? Just working with a few other theater students, we just did our own experimental stuff and we would just make up the sketches. So I was improvising. I just didn't know what it was called. Okay. And they weren't based on like uh, Spolin's games or anything no, like that? No. What was Dee's focus? Where did she draw um, her concepts from and the structures that you guys ended up doing? I think she got a lot of it from Viola Spolin. Also, you know, from the illegitimate theater that she'd been part of up north. Mm -hmm. And I think she also came up with some of her own ideas. Sure. And uh, just put together a group of six people and we started performing and it just took off. 
Yeah. Well, how would you describe the shows back then? Uh, was it a lot different than the kind of shows you're doing today? No, not not that different at all. Okay. Uh, space was different. We performed in a, a dance studio that we converted into a theater. She'd actually brought a stage down from uh, Northern California, and we'd put that up every Friday night and buy some snacks and sell them. Mm-hmm. And uh, people would come. The only other people that I'm aware of that were doing improv in Los Angeles at the time were the Groundlings. Mm-hmm. And uh, we would get uh, very good houses. We'd do every Friday and Saturday night. And what types of uh, games were you doing back then? Oh, freeze tags, change of emotions, playbook, I think, uh, style spot, improvising songs. Mm-hmm. But our, our mainstay was just, hey, can we have a suggestion for a scene idea? Okay. Something that happened to you, happened to a friend of yours, or just make it up. And people would call stuff out and we would just do it. And do just kind of a, a replay of that story in uh, in just kind of a, a straight scene? Well, hopefully a funny scene, but yeah. <laughs> um, and we would just get a suggestion, two nuns walk into a bar. Oh, I don't know, anything. You know, we right. would always say the simpler, the better. If you mm-hmm. get a big laugh with your suggestion it's probably not going to be as good a scene as if you say, going to do my laundry. But if you already tell us the joke and the suggestion, then, you know, where are we going to go? Yeah. So if you get a suggestion like that, do you take it anyways? Or do you, do you, uh, we tried to, we tried not to turn things down. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, I've developed the uh, phrase over the years. That's a great idea. Who else has got one? Right. 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 (laughs) So when, um, when you are starting, you're getting good houses right off right off the bat? Yeah, I think we were because it was unique. Yeah. We got some very good reviews in the LA Times and Variety and Hollywood Reporter and a local uh, couple other. It was called the Herald Examiner back then, okay. another LA paper. Mm-hmm. And as you're, as you're going along, you are, D is continuing to do workshops Yes. Um, and, uh, and and bringing some folks in. And and starting other shows. The other great show that she started was called Funny You Should Ask, with some terrific people in it. Yeah. And is that still going as well? Uh, no, they, I don't know when they ended, but 10, 15 years ago at least. Okay. Okay. Uh, but you had some kind of cross-pollination with those those folks as well, where you might yeah. sit in. Uh, what, what was different um, about that show versus the show you were doing? Or was it just different casts? Um, I don't think it was that different. Uh, several of the people were from uh, Minnesota and had come out of the Dudley Riggs Brave New Workshop. Okay. And um, some of them had come here to start their own group called the Comedy Corporation, I believe. Okay. But at the time, except for the Groundlings again. Yeah. Off the Wall was a place where people kind of came. If they moved here from Chicago and they knew somebody, they would come to that workshop. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, Robin Williams came to town, was living in his car. But uh, he, a woman who was in our group, knew him and brought him to the workshop. Yeah. And the way I've seen that described is almost like he was kind of watching from a, a doorway and, and D kind of waved him in. Uh, I don't know if that's more romanticized or how that uh, came about. Now, there was a woman named Susan Elliott, and she was then at that point, she was not, I can't remember if she was an original member, but she came in very early. Okay. And uh, she knew Robin from San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And when he came down, she just brought him in and he just got up and performed and we were all blown away. And, and D said, uh, this was a Thursday night. That was her advanced workshop was Thursday night. Okay. And uh, she said, we're doing a show tomorrow night. You want to be in it? And he said, sure. That was it. And he performed with you guys for a year, year and About a half? a year and a half, yeah. So what, What? Um, just because he is such a interesting character, and I, I don't know how how much people know about his improv other than sort of the the view of what he would do on stage but what what was he like to improvise with well he was first a stand up i think okay and first, what do you mean by that 
in that he was used to working alone. Mm -hmm. Not that he didn't have a lot of improv experience and he worked with improv groups in San Francisco, but uh, he did street theater and he would do stand up. So he, he could play three characters in a scene by himself. He didn't need somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, sometimes it was fantastic to work with him. Other times, uh, especially as he started to get successful and would go on the road sometimes and open for musical groups or whatever, he'd come back and would so be in the stand-up presentational mode Mm -hmm. that it would be hard to work with him because he just was doing his thing. Was that something that you guys would talk about as a group? Is is that something that D is maybe more in sort of a coaching kind of role would try to pull back on? Or was he just going to be unbridled regardless? I think he was who he was. We did uh, one scene one night where we were playing children and playing baseball. And a couple of us were on stage and he went out into the audience and then behind the audience into the foyer of the dance studio and was performing from there. Okay. Like he was maybe in the outfield or whatever. Oh, okay. But, you know, we were standing on stage looking at an audience who all had turned around and were watching him on the other side of the room. Yeah. Yeah. So, but, you know, he, he did concerts, uh, you know, his one man concerts where he'd, he'd climb all over the set. He'd go up the walls. He'd go out in the audience. He'd, you know. Was was there any resentment for um, sort of those um, breaking of uh, some of the improv rules? Well, I don't know. You know, you know, the line from the Sunshine Boys, you don't cut funny. I don't know that line, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> but funny is good. It's funny is good. I mean, he was, he was brilliant. So, so yeah. Sure. Do you want the audience to look at you? Yeah. Yeah. One night, Norman Lear came to see our show. And um, we took an intermission and Norman Lear approached me. And I thought, well, this is it. This is my moment. Yeah. I'm about to be discovered. And he says to me, boy, that Robin Williams is funny. (laughs) And I couldn't argue with him. Right. Yeah. He's not wrong. (laughs) 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 <laughs> but it wasn't uh, it wasn't the dream happening. So. so, I mean, the fact that, you know, we're uh, 15 minutes into this interview and you've spent at least five minutes so far talking to me about Robin. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm I'm thrilled and honored that I worked with him. Yeah. Was I frustrated at the time? I'm sure I was. Uh, oh, you, you've had a lot of people and you've had your own success as well. I mean, I think the success that is easy, more easily measured is outside of improv, right? I yeah. mean, improv is not where uh, the big bucks are. But you've also had people who have um, come through, and I get the sense that people like uh, have liked to sit in with uh, with your group when they can. I came across, I don't remember this, I, maybe I was too, too young when it was on, but the PM flyers uh, was the thing that I I came across. And it seemed to me in the clips that I I saw of that, that you might get a couple of, maybe even a couple of minutes. Sometimes it seemed like it might've even been less to do a quick game, sometimes with him and maybe um, sometimes kind of on your own. Can you talk about how that came about and what doing improv was like? I mean, talk about short form. Uh, that was the shortest short form, I think, that I've ever seen. And uh, it looked like you guys were able to pull it off. Dick was, uh, you know, mounting a new show called Nighttime, Dick Clark's Nighttime. And uh, he was looking for an improv group to, but he didn't, I guess they didn't want to hire an existing improv group. So they auditioned a lot of people. Okay. And um, I ended up working with three people that I already knew, Lynn Stewart, Paul Wilson and Doris Hess. Paul was in off the wall. Lynn is a groundling and uh, Doris Hess was part of Funny You Should Ask. Okay. And um, it's it was the most structured improv I've ever done in that the scenes were to be two to two and a half minutes long. Yeah. 
And there literally was someone off stage with a card telling us we had 30 seconds left, 15 seconds left, Mm -hmm. and we had to end the scene at, you know, at the moment it was supposed to end. Yeah. And so if you watch a bunch of those, you'll notice that in a few scenes where uh, Lynn and I are working together and I love working with Lynn. Yeah. Uh, one of the greatest. Uh, she would kiss me at the end of the scene because it was a way to wrap it up. Happy ending. <laughs> okay. <laughs> She'd see the card and oh well. Yeah, it's like okay, well, happy ending time. <laughs> <laughs> um, did that that experience change how you uh, approached uh, the 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 scenes or how you do things since? Because you had to get in the funny right away, too. It's not just that you had to finish on time. You had to be funny that much faster, right? Yeah. But we would, you know, pick a game and we would get to it right away, I guess. You know, I mean, the four, you know, the four of us were comfortable working together. And I think we knew what we had to do and just did it. It's not like being in a, you know, in a club or something where you're improvising a scene. And if the first, you know, I try to get to the funny right away anyway. Sure. I mean, to develop a scene. Yeah. So in in your group, I mean, you know, you've got your your cast, which uh, has that stayed relatively consistent? It uh, has. Yeah. And is that intentional? Is that um, just how you guys have decided to, to do it? Because you're teaching classes and, and you're not pulling as many people into off the wall as maybe early on happened. Um, you know, I always say that to get out of off the wall, you have to either get a TV series or die. <laughs> okay. And and it's pretty much what happened. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, if I have to say so myself, it's a great group. Um, everybody has their own strengths and our show works mm-hmm. and there's no reason to mess with it. I mean, we enjoy having guests with us. There's so many funny improvisers out there, so mm-hmm. many talented people, but, um, our show is kind of, uh, you know, set the way it is. Uh, people have been added over the years. There don't need to mention any names, but there have been a mm-hmm. couple along the way that we've invited to not come back. Not be there, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, but mostly it's, you know, uh, people like Wendy Cutler, who, you know, I've been improvising with since 1975. Yeah. And still love it. What are the things that cause you to not uh, invite somebody to keep coming? Like, what's the ethos of the group? I mean, you could I could ask that the other way. What makes somebody uh, a good cast member? Well, you know, personality has to have something to do with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's just people that you want to spend time with and people that you don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then there's people who maybe are not your favorite person to be around, but they add such an element to the group or any work mm-hmm. situation, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're not doing a good job and you have a lousy personality, you're probably gone. But sometimes we tolerate each other. But I, you know, I consider us a family and, um, you know, we have a lot of history together. Do you end up doing things outside of um, outside of the show? And I don't know if you still do uh, rehearsals or practices to this day, even though you've been doing it for uh, 40 Five years, I yeah, guess. 44, I think. Yeah. Um, I don't think we've had a rehearsal in 15, 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, we kind of keep the same running order. Okay. Because it works. Mm-hmm. It's a different show every time. And mm-hmm. we'll take out a game and throw in a game. But we all kind of have our favorite things that we like to do. Okay. And they're different every time. I mean, you could come see the show five nights in a row and it's going to be different, even though it's kind of the same running order. Mm -hmm. Um, The one thing that I regret is that we didn't work together more as a group to try to do more outside things like corporate events, private parties, you know, things where we could have actually made money. Yeah. We did some of those along the way and got paid well for them when we did them. Mm -hmm. But the nature of improv is that it's instant gratification. And especially if you're a group that's been together and you kind of already have the show down. Mm-hmm. If the show starts at 830, you literally can show up at 828 and, and do a show. And off you and go. Good show. 
So we tried many times. I mean, we used to have uh, more than rehearsals. We would have meetings where we would just discuss things we could change about the show or add a new song or a new scene or, but we would always talk about something bigger than what we were doing that we were going to try to do. And that, that would be the one thing that I regret is that we didn't do more of that. Did you have a, a point person who would have been the person to drive that forward? Yeah, it was always me. Yeah. I mean, it was Dee and her son, Norman. Norman was a huge driving force at the beginning of Off the Wall. Okay. The first five years when we were in the dance studio, Dee and Norman produced it. And the rest of us mostly, you know, showed up and performed. After five years, Dee turned it over to me. And that's when we uh, briefly went to a place called the Greenhouse Restaurant. And then we went to the Improv on Melrose in uh, Los Angeles, where we were for 14 years. And I became the point person, the director, the producer, whatever you want to call it. But I don't know. I don't want to air my laundry here. <laughs> okay. No, I'm not asking you to. But it, it seems to me that there is a tension between the business side of things and the artistic side of things. Exactly. And the business side of things is not something that is natural to many uh, creatives, we'll say, right. um, or it's seen as distasteful or a distraction or things like that. Plus, you're in a you're in an environment where you and your other cast members are also pursuing things outside of off the wall, right? Sure. Yeah, I would think that wouldn't help to pursue the other other things because whatever you do in off the wall, you're going to have to share so many different ways based on who's participating, as opposed to like a stand up. They just go where there's a mic and they get the check, and that that's that. A check? <laughs> well, I didn't know there was a check. <laughs> well, I thought that's what we were talking about with the corporate gigs. <laughs> right, right. And that, that was where the few times we did it. <laughs> now, you, you've been teaching uh, kind of all along the way. But um, even though it's been out for a number of years, I want to talk about your book with the very simple and direct title of Improv Comedy. I think you wrote that 93 or so was when it was published. What, what was the thought? Because there, there weren't like a lot of improv books out there. There's still only so many anyways. But what got you to, to take this as a venture? Did you have some purpose behind it? Yeah, there's actually quite a few more now. But uh, I think it was 91 okay. or 92. And, uh, and, and, and just parenthetically, I did publish a 20th anniversary edition in 2012. Yeah, yeah. With, with additions to it, including an interview with Brian Cranston. Okay, okay. But um, yes, 1991. I just decided that if there was anything I thought I knew something about, it was improv. Okay. And I, like you said, there weren't books out there that I knew of about it. And so I just uh, decided to write one. I took a treatment to Samuel French who only published plays, but they had started publishing books. Okay. And um, to my delight, they gave me a small retainer, and I finished the book and gave it to them, and they published it. Mm -hmm. They went out of the book publishing business a few years later. Uh, so the 20th anniversary edition I did, I had to self-publish. So in in the book, I mean, I, I, I look at some of the phrasing that you use, and there's a number of things that seem, I guess I would say, remarkably consistent or persistent from what you've written and what what else is kind of out there or that people are talking about. I mean, you have somewhere in your, in your book, you talk about um, playing uh, to the uh, top of your intelligence. The scene work uh, language that you have, um, I felt was still very current and applicable. Do you, do you think that's because improv has its own form that we're figuring out? Or do you feel like the art form still has, has more to go, if that, if that question makes sense? Uh, I think people have different goals with their improv shows. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, just like there's long form versus short form. Mm-hmm. I think there are more jokey improvisers, more scene-based improvisers, more character-oriented improvisers. Mm-hmm. I've worked with people who were very funny, but I found difficult to work with because they would just go off on a tangent to some funny thing they thought of or, you know, that was uh, sparked in their mind by something they said, some, mm-hmm. something another person in the scene said. Uh, and then you feel like, okay, well, now let's come back to what we're talking about, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Yeah, it and, does. And, and um, so to me, an improv scene ideally has a beginning, middle, and end. It tells a story. Not all of them do, of course. Right. Some of them are just, it's a funny situation. A guy goes to a doctor, and the doctor's funny. Mm-hmm. The character of the doctor is funny. And maybe the patient is just playing straight for the doctor. Mm-hmm. Or vice versa. Right. Well, one of the rules, and I think you might even put this on your website as sort of a fifth rule of improv, is no joking, please. Well, that was the uh, that was my original title for the book. Okay. All right. There's a famous acting book called No Acting, Please. Ah, okay. okay. And so I thought, well, this is an improv book. To me, the antithesis of improv is just making a joke. It doesn't come out of the moment. It doesn't come out of the situation. It doesn't come out of the character. Uh, so anyway, I wanted to call it No Joking, Please. Samuel French said, nobody will find it in the uh, bookstore if you call it that. Let's call it improv comedy. And that's how that happened. Well, he was probably right about the marketing aspect, but I appreciate the allusion to it because um, there is an acting element to it. And I think that also ties into another one of your four basic rules about um, playing the scene legitimately. Can you talk about why you think that is, uh, you know, sort of a, a top four or five rule of improv and why that is important to the product that comes on stage? It, it, I guess it ties in with, you know, being real. And why, why is that important? I just think it's believable. I just yeah. think even, and then even if the scene is not hysterically funny, you're up, you're watching something real happening before you. Mm-hmm. You're watching people relate to each other. It's just interesting as opposed to them pretending to be something. Mm-hmm. That's the same to me with regular acting. I would say you can't uh, separate good acting from good improv. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you watch an actor pretending to be their character, it's not going to be as interesting and compelling as if they become the character. Right. And also, when it, when it comes to becoming the character, I think it makes your job as an improviser so much easier because the character tells you what to say. Character is a focus for you. Um, how, how do you approach character? It's uh, either based on something I observe in people. There was a a guy that I worked with uh, when I was a kid who uh, worked in my father's furniture factory. Okay. And I just imitated him Mm -hmm. in one of my characters and his, his uh, English was not his first language. So his use of the language to me was very funny. And so I just use that and people seem to enjoy it. Other characters have just sort of come to me. I don't know why. I'll just start talking in a voice. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, maybe unconsciously it's based on a voice I heard somewhere at some time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I like to give the characters names. I like to figure out, you know, some personal things about them, whether that ever comes out in an improv scene doesn't really matter, but I know who that person is. So you have a catalog kind of in the in the back of your brain of, of of a few character types that have certain attributes that go along with them that may show up on stage is that yeah of- I, and i wouldn't even call them types okay uh, i mean you could say the it's a nerd type character uh-huh. but to me uh his name is herman daltz and he has a bit of a nasal voice and and he just is shy, uh, you know, a little res, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? Reticent. Reticent, Thank you. (laughs) Um, 
as a you know but the voice the voice leads me to a physical posture mm-hmm. i don't i don't know that everybody works that way but as soon as i start talking with that voice uh everything about my physicalization changes mm-hmm. so uh and i teach that if you have these characters then when you get a scene suggestion you can plug in one of your characters it would be appropriate mm-hmm. i mean if the character that you invented is the character of a doctor it doesn't mean he always has to be a doctor right be a clerk in a jewelry store mm-hmm. but it's the same character are you continually adding to that uh catalog I try to. Yeah. What uh, what inspires you then to add something new? I, I guess just a thought comes or, you know, or it's a variation. And is it usually a voice that leads you? For to... me, it is. Yeah. For me, it's almost always a voice. And do, do you teach it that way? Or do you, do you think that uh, people can have different handholds that get them into that character mindset? I think they can. But, uh, you know, I will often, you know, either ask someone to imitate someone that none of us know, Mm -hmm. know, whether it's a relative of theirs or somebody they've worked with or somebody they went to high school with or whatever. Just imitate them. Mm -hmm. We don't know who they are. And your imitation probably isn't going to be right on anyway. Right. You've just created a character. Yeah. Or I'll say, come up with a voice, a physicalization, and an emotion. Mm-hmm. And you combine those three things. Mm-hmm. So if you just, you know, add a nasal voice and somebody who is uh, struts when they walk, mm-hmm. and then they have a attitude of, uh, I don't know what promiscuous is coming to my mind, but you know, you combine those three, you've got a character. When you are developing those characters, are you conscious of uh, the believability or the groundedness of them or do you kind of follow what uh interests you about their affect or voice well i I think it's both Mm -hmm. uh also another element to add to a character is just an opinion about life Uh, you know how someone just behaves on a day-to-day basis but um the believability part i mean sometimes people will do a character and i'll go okay but Tone that voice down. Make it a real person. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many times I've said, make it a real person. But it doesn't have to be normal. It can be wacky crazy. I mentioned to you that book, uh, A Martian Wouldn't Say That. Yeah, we talked about that before having our conversation today. Yeah, and I, I just think it's a fun book. It's a, it's a small book, but it's basically based on the TV show, My Favorite Martian. Okay. And there are actual memos that were sent to the production staff about the show, whether it was a studio sending it or an executive or, and they would complain about certain things. And one of the memos they got was a Martian wouldn't say that. Mm-hmm. Now, right. Who the knows what a Martian would say. And not right. say. <laughs> so right. obviously it's an opinion, but what I'm saying is you can play a Martian as forget his name the actor that played the, the martian yeah i don't know i don't know but, but he yeah. played him like a real person yeah and i think that's what made it funny so you can play whatever you want i'm not trying to restrict what you play but just right. play it real yeah. like it's actually happening yeah if, i mean uh a, a scene that i will always remember this was in D. Marcus's class years ago, a very funny guy named Greg Burns. Uh, she just wanted to, the setup was, it's, you're confronting an authority figure. Okay. And this guy got up and did Bambi talking to the park ranger. Okay. But he just played it like a person. I mean, he put his little paws out like he was a, like he was Bambi. Mm-hmm. And kind of had a Bambi demeanor to him, but he was just asking regular questions. Yeah, and and you know, talking like somebody would <laughs> if they were <laughs> if they lived in the park, talking to the ranger. Yeah, and it was hysterical. Have you translated that kind of character development into? I mean, for instance, you've written a play. Um, did the improv? experience and practice and approach did that you know seep into how you approached putting together a written play uh yes 
I, a, a big part of my job teaching is to come up with scene ideas and situations for people to act out. And so I think I developed an ability to think of those kinds of things. And I, when I sit down to write, I, I sometimes have the, an idea where it's going to go. But once I'm writing, just like an improv, it can go a completely different direction. Yeah. You just kind of follow the characters along. Yeah. One person says this and, oh, well, since you said that, I'm going to say this. And that's what you should do in improv, uh, in my opinion, is 80% of improv is listening. Mm -hmm. So you can't know what you're going to say next. You have to wait until you hear what the other person said. Mm -hmm. You can have an idea where you might want to take a scene, but if the line the other person gives you isn't going in that direction, you have to be willing to give that up and go where it's going. But when you're writing the the lines of dialogue, you're playing all the characters when you're the playwright. Yeah, I'm just playing them in my head. And then trying to capture what you're hearing each of them say. I think improv is a great training tool for writers. Well, you're kind of writing on, on the spot in a sense anyways. Yeah, there's a great improv game called New Choice. Uh-huh. Where you, are you familiar with the game? I am, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, where you go to the audience, you, somebody says something, you go to the audience and say New Choice. Uh, we don't go to the audience. You 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 call out hit a choice. bell or or yeah. shout out new yeah, choice, yeah. and then the the improviser has to make a different choice. Mm -hmm. It seems like that is a difficult thing for some people to be that plastic. I think that's what that game requires that your your mind is willing to go in different paths as opposed to down the same you know stretch. Uh, that you're used to going or, or think you're heading towards. And that's the purpose of the game, though, I think. Right, right. To get you out of the, you know, first thing you think of. It's Now, that's a game. Right. That's not going to be necessarily a real situation. Since you just kind of created a sort of a picture of a, a game in a show, one of the things that came to mind... If I if I understand it right, um, when you guys will play the game freeze or freeze tag or whatever you call it, uh -huh. do you sometimes or maybe all the time involve the audience in that? For many years, that's how we ended our show. Okay, we would bring we would start the show with freeze tags, so they saw what it was, and then we'd bring somebody up from the audience and leave them on stage while we would tag each other out. Okay, so they were always in whatever the the frozen scenes would be, and they'd be in the next one and the next they'd one. They'd be in the next one, next one, and some would understand that it was a new scene, and some would not. Okay, but you weren't having people from the audience shouting "freeze" and sometimes coming on the stage. Oh yeah, okay. We'd say you're all invited to join in, and sometimes they would, and uh, sometimes they'd tag one of us out, and there'd be two audience members on stage. You know, at which point we'd go up and go, "Okay, I guess we can go home now." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, you know, then we'd tag back in. We had right. uh, Dudley Moore come to our show one night. Okay. He played the piano for us. It was great. But he didn't get at the end. We brought him up, and whatever it was, we were at the beach, let's say, for the first scene. Yeah. He was still at the beach in the third scene. He didn't get that. He never left the beach. <laughs> <laughs> but you stopped doing that then. You're not doing that. We anymore. end with a big musical number now. Okay, okay. It's because it's, you know, it's a big, it's fun. Music always works. In yeah, it's a, thing, it's a so. great ending. Did you find, though, that involving the audience that way was risky in the sense that it would sometimes just fall flat, or did it tend to work pretty well? Um, you know, you're almost using the audience member as a prop. Yeah. Or a pawn, uh, so it would usually work out okay. I mean, this is a ugly story, but we did bring up a woman one time and she was wearing a cape. A cape. Okay. And um, somebody yelled freeze, tagged in and said, uh, oh, Mrs. Johnson, uh, you must be here to pick up your arms because they were under the cape. Okay. Or, pick up your hands. I don't remember what it was. Anyway, she, she kind of pulled out and she was missing a hand. Oh, dear. Yeah, that's, uh, that's and, not a good moment. And then somebody got up at the very end, you know, because we always thank the person we brought up from the audience. Yeah. And said, can we have a big hand for so-and-so? Oh, jeez. Oh, and gosh. 
just know. just by just by uh, it's a story well, to remember. Yes, well, <laughs> but most of the time it works out fine. If they're not funny, you're funny around them. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, I would say the biggest backfire is if they're funnier than we are. <laughs> well, having the audience member as a hero can also be a pretty big win. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, it's. it's yeah, and, unless everybody leaves wondering, like, well, why do we pay to see these people? Right. We could have just watched ourselves. Yeah, hopefully we've done a good show up until then, so it speaks for itself. But yeah, uh, you know, I think improv because, like you said, it it maybe it's a um, a path to somewhere where you're going to make some money, but mostly you're there just to have a good time. Well, and that's I think one of the things that keeps it joyful. I mean, the fact that you've been doing it with a consistent cast and a consistent format for that long, I think speaks to that. Probably also has a, a sense of um, just contentment that goes along with the experience that can be, a, a, I guess, a, a beautiful part of someone's life if it's something positive and uplifting and joyful, which I think improv ought to be. Otherwise, why would you, why would you keep doing it? Yeah. It's it's fun, and you you know you enjoy working with those people. You trust them, you know they have your back. Yeah. So after having done it all these years, though, do you want to do something else? Yes, desperately. <laughs> <laughs> well, how how do you kind of view it as part of your life at uh, at this point? You know, I've been doing improv for about twenty years. And it's hard to imagine not having it be a part of my life. It's also something I'm able to look back on and see what it was like then and what it uh, kind of how it's worn, uh, you know, how it feels like a comfortable pair of shoes in some ways or mm -hmm. whatever it is. But how is how is improv fit for you where you're at today as opposed to, you know, over the past several decades? Well, Frankly, the past three, four years, we've been doing a show once a month. Okay. So we still have a hand in it, but I don't know that I'd want to do it every week. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that answers your question, but, uh, you know, I still enjoy doing it. I Sometimes it's like, oh, okay, we're going to go do this again because there's the whole production of it, you know, renting the theater and, you know. And are you still kind of in the lead role where you're... Uh, yeah. Making yeah. those things happen. Yeah. And I've started a second group. This, this I guess, added new life to it. I uh, Again, you know, the group is wonderful, but not the best at bringing an audience. Okay. My group okay. Off the wall. So I thought, oh, well, I'm going to put together a younger improv group. And they'll be new at it. And they'll bring the audience. And they'll go on first and open for off the wall. And we'll have an audience. Mm -hmm. So we started doing that, and it turned out that because Off the Wall hadn't performed for a while, more people were coming to see Off the Wall than they were this other group. They were excited that we were back together. So now it's uh, leveled off to you know maybe half and half, I guess. And I am able to bring people from the workshop into that group. Yeah, is that uh, is that mostly organic? Is yes. The... Okay. Yes. So we do a thing called Generations of Improv. So we have people from. 20s to 70s performing. Mm -hmm. And it, it's a fun evening. Everybody seems to love it. We've been getting really good houses. We've been trying to, off the wall, we've been trying to invite because uh, we had one person kind of retired, another one moved to Florida. So we've been trying to get other known improvisers to guest with us each month. Mm -hmm. Mindy Sterling, we had Lynn Stewart, we had uh, Amy Hill. Is mostly organic then? Are you saying that's that's the younger group and yes. they will, do you guys mix and match between off the wall and mostly organic or is it kind of open and closed? Kind we of haven't done that so far. So far it's mostly organic, take an intermission and then off the wall. Okay. What would you say are the, what what's the character difference between the two halves of the show? Besides age. Yeah. Um, I, I'm sure they're out there, but I haven't been able to find as many people as versatile as those who are in Off the Wall. And I'm sure there are people out there. And it's not to say that these people aren't very talented. Mm -hmm. I'm going to add music and they're reticent to do that. 
See, I said reticent right away as myself. There you go. <laughs> well, yeah. I thought that was just part of the character. Before. I'm hoping that's what everybody thought. Um, <laughs> so, so you know, just that. Not that these, you know, because, and, and, you know, we've had a little shuffle in the thing again with personalities. And it's like, you know, as you get older and you're doing this, it's like, you know, if you're not going to be fun to work with, then we'll find somebody else. Yeah. So the versatility aspect of it, do you think your cast and off the wall came to the group with those different skill sets that you could float into improv? Yeah. I mean, you talked about when you had, you had a, had a guitar um, and you were able to do a song. Well, you brought that musical sensibility. Always had a piano player. Yeah. But, uh, off the wall has always done improvised music. We would, uh, I always, when we were at the, uh, working at the improv, we'd do a three hour show at the improv, mm. uh, every Monday night. Yeah. At some point we had, uh, you know, Paul Wilson who played violin and we okay. had a keyboard player and I'd pull out my guitar and, and Wendy Cutler and Tom Tully would sing the blues and, uh, you know, we turned into a band. Well, I suppose for three hours you've, uh, you've got to be versatile, right? right? You, you can only do so many short form games over the course of that time, you need variety. So when you're, when you're putting together, like if we talk about your running order now for off the wall, uh, what does that look like and what kind of variety is implicit in that lineup? I, I, I try to, and especially with my new group, uh, mostly organic, I try to do uh, a game and then a scene, a game and scene, a game, a scene. By the way, this is just totally parenthetical, but we were doing a show at the Improv one night and we would do games and scenes, but Off the Wall does a lot of scenes yeah. and so does mostly organic, you know? So, and this guy comes up after the show and he goes, so I was following the plot in the first act. <laughs> he didn't get that it was short form. Right. He was trying to make a story out of the whole thing the poor guy yeah. well he he was he was creating his own herald uh, yeah you, yes, right? exactly. <laughs> In his head. um no i think you know i i but ha know. about half scene games and about half yeah. non-scenic games yeah and that way uh, if you do a scene and somehow it doesn't go great you're following it with a game that's probably gonna you know elicit laughs and yeah and go back to another scene or whatever. I mean, I guess that's the format of the Herald. I've, I know so many groups that do a thing they call the Herald that is not exactly the Herald. Right. Right. It's just a combination of things. There's a million different forms that, uh, all somehow trace back <laughs> to that structure. Well, um, before I let you go, you continue to teach workshops, right? Yes. And that's something that uh, you're doing for folks who are looking to perform or uh, just kind of stretch uh, a skill set. Are you traveling for these things too, Andy, or are people mostly coming to where you're at? Uh, they mostly come to the theater that I rent. And I have to say that the, the class I have going right now is pretty advanced a lot of the people are people I've known for many, many years who have been improvising for many, many years. And they're just coming for the workout and the fun and going out for pizza afterwards. There are newer people who are learning. And um, I think the greatest gift they're having is to get to work with these people who are so good. Yeah. And uh, is it a topic focus that you typically do? Or when you say it's an advanced group, it's the people coming in have an advanced um, level of skill. Yeah, advanced level of skill. Yeah. I mean, there are people in there who I wouldn't even give a note to. Well, that's fun. That's fun. All right. Well, um, Andy, I'll, I'll put links um, in the, the web uh, episode page on improvcomedyconnection.com. Great. But thanks. people can get to a lot of what you uh, do, maybe everything um, that we've talked about today at Andy Goldberg Comedy. Dot com. Yeah, that's under construction, but it should be up. Uh, well, you can get found on, on uh, the Facebook. The Facebook. For sure. Andy Goldberg yep. Improv Comedy Workshops. Mm -hmm. 
and off the wall is not hard to find either that way or otherwise. Yes. And the book, uh, Amazon is, yes. uh, is carrying it. <laughs> so, uh, so that's, that was that's available there. Yep. Yeah. Um, well, I appreciate the, the time, uh, spent uh, together. Yeah. Thank you. Man. Well, there it is. I think there's a number of ways to look back over that conversation. To me, it seemed as though Andy's approach and experience with improv developed very organically, perhaps going back to the 50s when he was improvising sketches in his garage for charity, and also without a long shadow of a specific school of improv. In our post-conversation, we talked a bit more about his uh, original mentor, Dee Marcus, and her coaching style, which was not heavy on notes. It was more about the doing of improv and together finding what worked. Well, I think it's great to be rigorous in your thinking and analysis. It's also important to not have an overly academic approach overwhelm the benefits of just doing the work. At the end, Andy also talked about versatility among performers, whether that's in music, dance, or whatever other talent someone might be able to bring into a show or into improv. I don't know if it's a trend or if certain societal trends are leading to greater focus on a single talent or experience instead of pursuing multiple skills or experiences. This kind of thing comes up quite a bit in conversations with improvisers, that there's a great benefit for one's improv in pursuing non-improv interests. If all you're doing is improv classes, practices, shows, or jams, maybe you should consider picking up a hobby. Anyway, you can get all the important links and information on the episode page on improvcomedyconnection.com. You can look up Andy, particularly on Facebook, and you can grab his book, Improv Comedy, on Amazon. I hope this episode has been helpful to you and that the podcast has benefited you as well. It'll help a lot if you'll share the podcast with someone you know personally. And again, thank you so much to those who've already done that and who've rated and subscribed to the podcast on your platform of choice. I've started recording and planning for the second season, so now's a great time to share an idea as to how this could be more useful to you, or if you've got a great idea for a topic or a guest for a future episode. You can let me know that by sending me an email to wit at improvcomedyconnection.com. I'm doing this to be of help to you as we work together to connect more deeply with each other and our audiences through comedy. So your feedback, again, is very much appreciated. Thanks for letting me be your host on this episode of the Improv Comedy Connection. My name, again, is Wit Schiller, and I'm an improviser out of Milwaukee with Fishsticks Comedy. You can check us out at fishstickscomedy.com, and you can connect with me on social media at Wit Schiller on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. I'm not unfriendly because no one is anymore, but I hope we can all be friendly with one another on social media anyway. Let's at least give it a try. Thanks again for tuning in to the Improv Comedy Connection.